Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, nuggets? What the grudge fuckers? And what the fucking knots? How are you? Mark Marin here. Nice to see you. Uh, glad to be here. Hey, uh, between us, this is not on Twitter yet, uh, Brian Jones mugs are back. They're up now. BrianRJones.com. Go get the uh, hand-thrown, very unique WTF guest swag mug. This mug was only made available by me giving it to people, to guests on the show, and then Brian does them in small batches, very small, usually of about 50, so they go. I promised you guys I would talk about it before I tweeted it, so I'm telling you about it. I can't guarantee it'll be there. The guy can only do so much. He's one man. He's one man with a wheel. Julia Sweeney is on the show today. It's very nice of her to come by. She doesn't come out this way very often. I believe she's up in the uh, Chicago area. But it was uh, amazing to talk to her. I, I uh, just, what a great person, an amazing talent. And, and now she's, we're all grown up, folks. We're growing up. And that's going to become very apparent. As you know, it happens to everybody if you're lucky. If you're one of the lucky ones, you get to watch yourself get old. Yay. But, you know, you take care of yourself, eat right. Well, I guess that's what I'm getting at. All right? well, I know it's Thanksgiving. All right. Thanksgiving is coming up Thursday. I will give my Thanksgiving pep talk on Thursday. I will reserve that for then. Me, I was not going to go to Florida. I was not going to go. I believe I'm going. I'm going to leave it a little cryptic. <laughs> I'm going to go. You know? I'm going to go see my mommy. We're heading into it, folks. We're heading into food. We're heading into shame. We're heading into food shame. We're heading into family shame. We're heading into the reality that people we haven't seen in maybe a year or another year older. People are getting fragile. People are going through shit. There's all the old tapes that are going to be reactivated. You're uh, you're going to get home and your, your parents or your mom or your brother, whoever the fuck it is, is going to push play on the shit tape that defined your childhood. You Got to fight against that. Like I said, I don't want to get into it. Let's stick with food. What are you cooking? What do you got going? What's your job? Are you in control? Are you in charge? Are you the one making the thing? Are you making one thing? You're making a few things. You know, I thought it was important today that we're going to have Thanksgiving on Thursday that, you know, maybe we we should have a, a little food talk. Be a nice idea to have a little food talk. What do you think? So on the show today, we're going to have a little food talk. And when it comes to uh, bringing in someone to talk about food, there are a few reasons why uh, Dan Pashman was the best choice, folks. For one, 
It's what he does now. He's the host of WNYC's food podcast, A Sporkful, and the author of the new book, Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. But also, people, Dan has been getting in my face with his opinions about food and other things for more than a decade. All right. Dan worked with me on my old Air America gig on the Morning Sedition show, and we used to argue on the air about food all the time, all the time. In fact, during this talk with Pashman, you'll hear one of those arguments that we had on Morning Sedition and listening back at it. I think I need to start taking a little more credit for setting Pashman on his current career path. Pashman's one of those guys with opinions about little things that you don't think you have opinions about, but when somebody like Pashman provokes you, all of a sudden you do have an opinion about it, and you'll defend that opinion, even if you're halfway into that opinion, you know, and you realize you don't give a shit. Yeah, have you had that happen where you lose steam mid opinion? <laughs> yeah. Oh, nothing worse than losing steam mid opinion. You just react to someone's bullshit and you're like, oh yeah, I got some bullshit to counter that. And then about midway through, you're like, wow, this really is bullshit. And I don't care one way or the other, but I guess I got to ride it out and take the hit or maybe he'll fucking buckle. Maybe he'll buckle. Yeah. I used to be that guy. I I try not to. I I argue about only very specific things, but uh, Dan will get my ire up. Dan Pashman, how are you, Dan? I'm doing great. How are you? It's nice to see you. I think I should give some background to our relationship. Dan Pashman was, what was your title? I believe associate producer? Yeah, sure. <laughs> when <laughs> I, a long time ago. <laughs> when I first started doing radio in 2004, being totally green with no experience whatsoever, uh, Dan Pashman and, and uh, my business partner and producer, Brendan McDonald, were uh, two young guns, radio producers at Air America. We were all working under a guy who had no experience whatsoever <laughs> in radio. I think that wasn't, I think Jonathan Larson, I think he was, he was the producer, but Brendan was the only guy that had the radio experience or did you too? I had a little bit of radio experience. And you had a flat top. I couldn't understand how you and Brendan looked so fucking conservative. <laughs> like you were sporting the full on Haldeman. You had the full, <laughs> like you had, like it wasn't like a crew cut. You had the classic flat top. And I was like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Yeah, you were all shaggy. You had the faux. You were rocking the faux hawk back then. Was I? Oh, you had a faux hawk. A little bit, but anyway. So we were there <laughs> at all hours and all hours of the night. I remember that was that moment. I think that Brendan, when you came in, you used to put together all the news stories for the day, right? And that first week, you came in and dropped them on, uh, you know, on my desk, <laughs> and I was like, "I can't do this. How are we going to cover all this?" <laughs> Like, I had no idea that you weren't giving them to me to cover everything. That was the early system. I actually had to print out like 500 news articles, yeah. punch holes in them, put them in a binder, mm -hmm. and give them to you and the other hosts. And I, yeah, I can imagine that it would seem overwhelming. But now, uh, years later, you've, uh, you've, you've followed my lead. That's right. I'm going to say that. You can say it. Uh, you have a podcast called The Sporkful, which got popular. That's, that's right. Somehow? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> miracle of miracles by, by some miracle <laughs> and uh you, you had me on there early on and rachel maddow and the angle was you're going to talk about eating food that's right you're you have no real credentials well i'm good at eating food <laughs> i know Is that's that a credential? it <laughs> you're not you're not even like a food critic or anything nope <laughs> well, the, we're doing this like it is Thanksgiving time, so I, I think that uh, this is a good time to talk about this. I mean, your book is called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. This is, you're a guy, this is all you got, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's, well, like, it's true, but the other funny thing about it is yeah. that like I, I honestly did start a podcast. I mean, you did have a lot to do with it directly and indirectly because part of the big reason why I started a podcast was that I worked on two radio shows in particular that yeah. both got that I poured my heart and soul into. Right. And they both got canceled. One of them was Morning Sedition. Right. The other was the Brian Park project at NPR. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, you know, like it's a terrible feeling to work so hard on something and then feel like it's been taken away from you. Aww. Yeah. yeah. It made me sad. Yeah. And so I figured if I have my own podcast, at least I'm the only one who can cancel it. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I think that it, here's the thing about you, and we don't really have a problem because I understand who you are and you understand who I am. Yeah. Uh, but you get committed to ideas about bullshit <laughs> that <laughs> that are just we're just unshakable. Right now, I'm getting a little weird anger rush because <laughs> over like thinking back about our argument about the Black Crows and the Rolling Stones. I, no, it was would, the Black Crows and the Faces. I, was it? Yes, and I have to say, I think I've come around to your point of view. The Faces are better than the Black Crows. Oh my God! <laughs> of course they are, you dummy. But. But when we were younger, when you were younger, yeah. you're like, I don't know why you old guys get hung up on these guys. They just, you're like, they do it better. I'm like, what are you talking about? But we'd argue for hours. Yeah. And and would it would be about almost anything. You were just the kind of person that would, like, I would argue with you just because I could. <laughs> because you, like, it was ridiculous. But I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take credit for inventing your entire uh, oeuvre. That's cool. I'm going to take credit for sending you into the world to argue about food. Because these are opinions. And the, I mean, I think on some level, you know, you are sh- uh, telling people in the book how to really enjoy food and what goes into food and what goes into eating food. But like, let's play this clip uh, from this is from October 2004. Oh, my I think. goodness. This is 10 years ago. This, <laughs> and this is like before this was even a seed in your imagination. We had a debate here in the studio. Important stuff going on here in the studio. Dan Pashman has a stance that I'm not sure I agree with, yet he will defend it. We were discussing what we were going to have for breakfast, and the idea of the uh, omelet came up, and then there was a cheese problem. He's got a cheese problem. He says that the place that we get our breakfast doesn't always have such good cheese. And this is a guy that says, I don't want a Philly cheesesteak sandwich if has cheese was on it, which is, the this is the standard. So now, but here's the, it gets larger, because we went with Dan Pashman to uh, to the Philly cheesesteak place, Pat's, and it was it was good, but he said, well, if that's all that city has to offer, then then I'm not down with it. But then it became a, a bigger problem about bread. <laughs> well, this is something I feel very strongly about, Mark, and I, I am a bit of a sandwich connoisseur, I'll be honest with you. I put a lot of study and research and thought into the creation and manufacture of sandwiches. Yes. And I'm, I'm quite confident that uh, you, st- you already have an inferior sandwich before you're taking a bite. If you have hot things on the inside with cold bread on the outside, if you're going to have hot eggs and cheese or a burger or a hot dog or anything, whatever you're doing, you got to heat the bread if you have up, hot inside. Back up. This is crazy. You're talking yeah. crazy because you're denying the, the power of fresh bread. If you have a fresh roll... All right, that's really nice and fresh and soft, like a bulky roll, as they call them in Boston, or or whatever they call them here. Kaiser, you know, a Kaiser right, roll, yeah. Right. That and you put the egg sandwich on that. You, toasting a Kaiser roll that's really fresh just it makes it. It's wrong. Yeah, I, I think you're wrong here. I understand what you're saying, and I will grant you that in a situation where you have a small amount of bread and a large amount of hot filling. Such as your corned beef example. That, well, that was an example bread, the listeners didn't hear. That fresh rye go, bread. Let's say you go to the Carnegie Deli and you order a hot corned beef sandwich with switch cheese. The, the, the corned beef comes out of the uh, steam plate, out of the steam table. You slice it up hot. You put the cheese on it. It melts itself. I and understand. then you put it on a fresh a fresh piece of uh, right, rye bread. But if you're talking about one scrambled egg and one slice of cheese and a big, fat, bulky roll where your sandwich is like 80% bread, if that bread is not heated, then then it's uh, no, not no, a good sandwich. The bulky roll squishes up like it gets all soft and it meets 
it meets the egg and cheese. It meets it. Do you understand? If you have a little toasted crust, because you grill a bulky roll, there's no saying it doesn't just turn hard and brown. Yeah. You know, I've been there, and it dries it out. It you, dries out the fresh roll. You can microwave it. It doesn't even have to be hot. Oh, not microwave. No, no, microwave. No, no, no. You can't no. microwave You anything. call yourself a sandwich no, connoisseur, and you use the word microwave? <laughs> What's up with you? No. I would not microwave. I would toast it. I'm saying if you want the if you want to maintain the squishiness, I agree. I would never mi- microwave bread. No, you can't microwave almost anything. There's nothing you should microwave unless you have to. That's, That's right. A microwave is in an emergency situation because if you microwave anything, it just turns into hard crap. Something goes wrong with it. Microwave screw with food on a molecular level. Look, it ruins it. You That's guys, right. come, you guys come to my house. I cook you a Dan Pashman patented grilled egg and cheese sandwich, and you will hey, look, see I'm, the light. I'm sure I promise it would be you good. that. I'm sure it would be good, Dan Pashman. But what I'm saying to you is you started this argument with this like blanket statement that you cannot have hot stuff on a cold bread and you've made a concession. The yes. only concession I'll give you is corned beef, and that's because there's so much corned beef and so little bread that it will warm the bread while keeping it fresh, but that won't happen in, in most sandwich ratios. See how people just naturally spin? It's not just a Republican thing. You see what's <laughs> happened here? <laughs> what's changed, Dan? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that both you and I talk slower now. Yeah, well, that was morning, and I was on <laughs> 900 cups of coffee and a handful of M&Ms and complete mania. And that, that other voice you heard was Mark Riley, who was my co-host for a couple of years on the morning show. That's Mark Marin morning show energy. That's right. I wasn't going to give you an inch, though. No, and you didn't. But you know, the funny thing about listening to that is like when I first set out to do the Sporkful, I was like, this seems like a fun idea. I think it's a different way to talk about food. It actually wasn't until after I started doing it that I was like, this is the role I was born to play, <laughs> you know, like, and then I started thinking back to the segments we did together. And I was like, it was right in front of me all along. You right. Know? <laughs> well, I think that being passionate about something and being excited about something and, and having opinions about food. I mean, there's very few arguments you're going to have about food in the world that you're running in where you're going to end a friendship or, you, <laughs> or you're not going to talk to somebody for years. Do you share some of these uh, provocative opinions in Eat More Better, your book? Uh, I sure do. In fact, I talk in particular about the the Philly cheesesteak. Uh, there's a lot of opinions in the book, and um, I talk- in Let's the, go over some of them. Well, I talk in the language arts. It's a tongue-in-cheek textbook, the book, that would teach you to eat more better, to make every bite more delicious. So I talk in the language arts chapter about regional foods, mm-hmm. like buffalo wings or Philly sure. cheesesteak, and uh, about what right does the region have to- Coin a new term for the for a food it invents. What right does it have to define what is and is not that food? And then yeah. what right do they have to modify it? So I will say, like the the, the cheese steakeries of Philadelphia have a right to say what is and is not a cheese steak. So that like Geno's and um, uh, Pat's, the, Pat's and, right. and then there's a couple other ones, right? That, so they can say, like for instance, they have accepted the pizza steak with tomato sauce. They listed on their menus under cheesesteak, so they've accepted that. But when John Kerry was running for president in 2004 and he went to Philly and he ordered a Philly cheesesteak with Swiss cheese, yeah, he was like booed out of town. So It cost him the election. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> is, do, do you agree, Mark, that Swiss cheese, putting aside what is or is not a quote-unquote Philly cheesesteak, yeah. Swiss cheese on a steak sandwich could be very delicious. Fine, if you like Swiss. Look, you know, look... I, I mean, I'm not a huge cheese whiz fan if we're going to re-engage this <laughs> argument. 
but it's but, only been 10 years Mark. but the thing is like you know provolone's the other option they're both good and i think what you're getting with regional foods sometimes especially with the cheesesteak is you're getting a history of that like both of those places have probably been using the same bakery for years they're using those same griddles for years they have the same amount of focus in what they're doing like there's other sandwiches in philly that are very good like the roast pork at john's yeah uh, or the roast pork at denick's there's two different approaches to this but what you're getting with those sort of essentially kind of homemade fast food is you're getting a, a legacy there's a tradition there and sometimes that tradition pays off and it can, maintains a consistency and it is special because of the love that goes in it and and the equipment that goes into it it's seasoned equipment and then other times it just becomes a racket but i think what you're saying like with the buffalo wings look it, buffalo wings is is butter and frank's red hot and that that's b- buffalo wings it's fried chicken wings dumped in uh frank's uh, red hot sauce and and butter in some right. ratio and then serve can they say that no one can do that well i don't know i've had pretty good buffalo wings a lot of different places i've had them in buffalo but now in buffalo you get these other places like we don't just do buffalo wings we're doing a lot of kinds of wings right but but that's the the question i have for you mark is is yeah don't you think that I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. You're right. Yes, there is a magic to these old school foods right. and the tradition and all that. I'm all for that. Yeah. But don't you think that sometimes that also stands in the way of progress? <laughs> like we're not going to make it to the moon? <laughs> well, like I, I've talked to some Buffalo Wing aficionados who say that the center of Buffalo Wing innovation is now in Syracuse and Rochester, mm-hmm. uh, upstate New York, because the people in Buffalo feel beholden to the traditional recipe because tourists come and they want it the old-fashioned yeah. way, yeah. and now there are more delicious wings that have been developed elsewhere. Yeah, but, I mean, it's the, but they don't just want it the old-fashioned way. They want to go to that place, the anchor or whatever. The anchor bar. Yeah, that's where they want to go. They want to get a picture. They want to sit there with the original. But these might be people that eat buffalo wings every week at their place, and they might, not even, they might be able to admit that the wings at their place is better or not, but they did go to the source. There's something about going to the source. I don't think it stands in the way of progress. How? I'm telling you, I talked to a guy who did a whole, <laughs> a whole yeah. documentary. He's from upstate New York, and he did a documentary about his search. He was Went across the whole wing belt of upstate New York. The a, wing belt? The wing belt. <laughs> Is this in your book or on the show? That's on the Sporkful, yeah. yeah. And he uh, he was the one who told me. He said, Buffalo's falling behind. Wow. I, did he is has he alerted the city? Yeah. Is it, is it, has he has he told the chairman of wings that um, perhaps they have to sort of make a change? I mean, I think that the anchor bar is probably too busy counting money to care unfortunately i think what hampers progress more than anything else probably guy fieri is is i think he's running out of places and i'm not sure that uh, all the places are exactly as uh, great as he thinks they are right but but i would think that uh well maybe i'm wrong i was gonna say wow that was quick (laughs) i didn't even have to do anything you just lost the argument in your own head (laughs) you want to try it i was gonna say that (laughs) It may be his fans are the ones who are most likely to go to the anchor bar and take the photos and get the T-shirts. Well, I think that anything that encourages, you know, you know, small businesses and, and people that do something interesting is good. You know, and, and there's a lot of places that make one good thing. I'm sure the anchor bar's got other snacks. Uh, I didn't go to the anchor bar to get wings. I actually went to, like, the other place. And it was just a bar. And the wings were fine. But, you know, I've had plenty of good wings in a lot of different places. I used to work at a place that made perfectly good wings. If you do the butter Frank's hot sauce thing, you're going to get a good wing. And you fry them good. You just dump them in the basket. You put them in the fry later. They come out cooked. And then right away, you shake off the oil and you throw it in the mixture of Frank's and butter. And then drain it off. And you can't lose. 
Well, I actually would argue that it's better if you serve them with sauce on the side. What? <laughs> well, you're, gonna, you're not going to sauce the wings? They're not going to be dripping with well, franks the, and butter? Buffalo wings, chicken wings are a member of the fried chicken family, and you got to respect the crisp. If you get your buffalo wings with the sauce on the side, you can dip them into the sauce on a per bite basis to sauce them while still maintaining wing crisp. See, now this is where this is where I got problems with you. <laughs> you you've decided that is this in the book? There's buffalo. a lot of wing eating techniques in the book. There is, yeah, like the, well, the well, wing with the two bones. The, yeah, actually, Brendan Brendan McDonald's technique for wings is in the book. It is, yeah. which is what. Uh, he um, eats, like we're talking about the wing with the two parallel bones yeah, and the yeah, meat in the middle. Yeah. He eats all the way around the perimeter very delicately using only his teeth so the spiciness doesn't get on his lips. Right. And then he uses his tongue to poke out the meat in between the two bones and uses that as a palate cleanser. He's afraid to burn his face. Right. Oh, a palate cleanser. <laughs> Look, you've decided in some like screwed up Pashman world that, that wings are a member of the fried chicken family. Fried chicken... Is battered. Uh, it's if chicken is fried, it's fried chicken. Maybe it's like a black sheep. Yeah, no, it's not. This is this it's a, is. It's a redheaded stepchild wing, no, of the wing, fried chicken family. The thing is, if you cook the <laughs> if you cook those wings long enough, so they got a nice hard crust on them, and the the oil is hot enough, and you just hit them with that sauce right away, you'll get that texture. The texture of the buffalo wing is what it is. <laughs> you don't separate the idea. It's like no, it's it's about fried chicken and sauce. No, it's about buffalo wing. The buffalo wing added best is if it's fried properly and dipped in the sauce and you bite it that's what it's supposed to taste like you don't want that 10th wing to be crispy but that's not the problem the problem yeah sure you you want it to be crispy but then eat faster drink faster do whatever you got to do <laughs> get the food in your fucking face i mean that that, that is not because you're you're, you're troubleshooting this is not this is not a principle you have. You haven't. This oh is, no, no, crisp is a principle. I, I will know. defend crisp. I know, and crunch. but okay, okay, fine. But let's say, <laughs> let think about those first four wings, hot, where you still get the crisp underneath the sauce that's dripping off of it. That hot, beautiful butter and Frank's hot sauce, and then like, okay, so you get to the ninth wing, and you're like, gee, I, w I wish they were separate now. So, so apparently you don't mind cold wings. <laughs> you dip a nice cold, crispy wing in the sauce. So really, what you're arguing is that. When the sauce has a chance to seep into the wing a little bit, you lose crisp, but it unifies. It melds into a new thing that isn't quite the same when yes, you uh, apply the dip uh, on a perfect basis. Buffalo wing. Right. <laughs> it's a buffalo wing. I think I think that just that term just uh, refers to the sauce. No, I, I refuse to acknowledge that. So if you go to a, a wings place and you get uh, wings with barbecue sauce. That's not buffalo wings. It's not, but if you get them with the sauce on the side, then what are they called? A disaster. <laughs> it's, called, it's, it's called, we don't know how to do this right. <laughs> right? Ten years later, Mark, we still got it. Yeah. <laughs> no, because you dip it in the blue cheese dressing or the ranch dressing. But in this guy, um, Matt Reynolds, who did this documentary, The Great Chicken Wing Hunt, that I'm mm -hmm. referring to when he went across the wing belt, in, he took out a, a team of wing aficionados. They traveled across the wing belt. Yeah. And the wing that they picked, this is a spoiler alert for people who may want to watch this film, which I recommend. Go ahead. The wing that they picked, yeah. the sauce had blue cheese dressing in the sauce. And they said it was amazing. I'm sure it's amazing. It's just, it's a matter of tradition and classic versus, you know, it, I don't think anyone's stifling progress. But, you know, you know some people are, are going to be like, uh, well, I'm a traditionalist. Well, that's right, but this is what I. This is the argument that I make in the book, which is if the people of Buffalo want to say that it's not a buffalo wing unless it's served already sauced, they have a right to say that. But 
They don't have a right to say that separating the wing and the sauce would not make it better. Fine. It's not buffalo wing, though. <laughs> but it's better. But, but No, it's a matter of taste. You know, some people enjoy things that you don't enjoy, and, and it's their right. And you doesn't mean you're wrong. Well, you know, as, as they say, it just uh, means you have to adjust the way you see things. Right? No, I mean, look, there there are matters of taste, and I, as I, you know, I always quote the Latin maxim, "Degustibus non est disputandum." In matters of taste, there can be no dispute. Mm-hmm. So I try to deal in my work uh, in matters of objective truth. But I think what we learned about you also is that in your youthful uh, cockiness, mm-hmm. that sometimes you don't have the depth necessary. To really appreciate. <laughs> well, like we so said, Mark, faces. you taught me everything I know. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> what other stuff am I going to learn in this book? Let's fight it out. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are some lines you draw in Eat More Better? Proximity effect. Yeah. Anytime you take a bite of food, whatever's in closest proximity to your tongue, mm-hmm. that flavor will be accentuated. Mm-hmm. So I recommend cheeseburger with cheese on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so that way the cheese is closer to your tongue, it accentuates cheesy goodness. Now, is it- <laughs> Is this something you've worked? Do you do this? When oh, you... yeah. When I do my book talk events all over the country, I, I bring Oreos and I do a demonstration where you separate the Oreo and you eat them frosting side right on your tongue and you can taste the difference. I mean, that seems like a good idea. I'm, it a, is. I'm a compulsive eater. Everything goes in very fast. Right. It's not a lot of savoring. No, I know. I've seen that. I remember <laughs> when we were working together at Air America the second time around. Yeah. The first time we were so full of hope, but the second time we knew it was just, <laughs> it was a paycheck, right? Yeah. And a little I, cynical. Yeah. And I had the idea that that I could maybe make the job last a little longer if I positioned myself as the guy at the office who was like, rah, rah. Um, I, like, I'm like i the team builder guy. I started the softball team. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I organized a St. Patrick's Day party. Sure. And I cooked yeah. a, corn, a whole corned beef in a crock pot the yeah, whole day at the office that. so yeah. we could have a party at 5 o'clock. Yeah. And all the executives were like, oh, Pashman's so great. He gets everyone so excited. Yeah. And hopefully it's getting me like yeah. one more month of employment. Right. Um, and so, and I brought in my cutting board and my nice knife, yeah. and I took the corned beef out of the crock pot and I put it on the cutting board in the kitchen. Yeah. Everyone was congregating in the conference room. Yeah. And so I had, and so I sliced up the corned beef yeah. and I had it beautifully arranged on this big wooden cutting board. Yeah. And everyone's waiting in the conference room, which yeah. is like 100 feet away. Right. Except you. Yeah. You were standing right next to me. And the second I stopped slicing the corned beef, you started just taking it with your hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> off the cutting board and you then as I tried to run away from you so that there'd be enough corned beef left for other people you yeah. jogged alongside me <laughs> <laughs> pulling corned beef off the <laughs> off the cutting board with your hands so well you job. know that I uh, my I have a diminishing buffet syndrome I know well, this yeah. is we've talked about this before yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a, an important thing to realize how do you combat that you just you, you sort of get in the present and realize like well they're supposed to have food for a while <laughs> Maybe they'll make good on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, good luck with the book. Eat more, better, and and uh, as always, the uh, Sporkful. Is that once a week? Sporkful podcast once a week. That's right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, buddy. Good seeing you. You too. Ah, wasn't that pleasant? I don't know if it was pleasant. It was nice to see Dan. It was nice. He. He's annoying in a very charming way. Julia Sweeney is a lovely woman and very funny. Uh, I was thrilled that she stopped by to talk to me. Her memoir was released uh, earlier this year. It's called If It's Not One Thing, It's Your Mother. Uh, I love her. I love her. Let's talk to Julia. 
Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Sweeney. Julia Sweeney. Hello. I like. I can't. Like. I feel like we ran into each other sometimes. When? Do you remember? Oh, at like clubs, I think. Because I did a little stand-up kind of. Like I feel like I know you kind of. Yeah, like I remember seeing you at clubs at things. At things where you'd come in and 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 people be like, "There's she's on SNL. There she used to be on SNL. That's Julia Sweeney. So much funnier." No. That's not true. Oh, Did you... No, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. Yeah. But it was, um, but yeah, I feel like I was, and then I just love you. I oh, just love you. Well, you're so nice. <laughs> I do, I do. Where do you live now? I live in a small town north of Chicago. I was just in Chicago. Yes, I know. And I uh, did a big old show. <laughs> yeah. And it was good. What what town north I of Chicago? I never go out. Otherwise, I would definitely go if Is... I was a person who ever left my house. Right. Isn't that weird? We get to, <laughs> like, I always wonder about that because I'm so thrilled that my fans come out because most of my fans are, they're not my age, but they're not kids. Right. So, like, I know that it's a big deal for them to come out. It's a right. hard audience to get people. Well, first, I blame it on having a kid, but... The truth is I didn't go out even when I didn't have a kid. And really having a kid, part, like 50% of becoming a mother was having an excuse to never leave the house. Can't go out. Can't get a sitter. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, I so would be at your show. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of shows to go to in Chicago of people you oh, know. Oh, I know. It's did, true. Did you grow up there? No. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Spokane, Washington. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think I knew that because I did some my vague research. Oh. <laughs> Spokane, Washington. Yes, Spokane, and then I went to college in Seattle, and then I moved to L.A. That's so lucky to go. That's so beautiful up there. Do you care about I it know. anymore? Yes. Do in you... fact, I just bought a cemetery plot for myself in Spokane. Well, that's an uplifting way to start the show. Is <laughs> no. it a nice plot? Is it? It, it is. It's with our family. It's uh-huh. other people in the family. Uh-huh. And actually, just this morning, I paid the final check on it. And so it's all ready <laughs> but, to and, go. And I feel like... I don't have to visit Spokane that much anymore because I'm going to spend a long time there. <laughs> that's that's my, my re- post-retirement plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Do I need to get one of those? When do you get one of those? When I don't do you... know because my husband and I have kept going back and forth about it. Because yeah. he doesn't care at all about that and would not even discuss it. Well, and the I... only reason I did is because I've had a couple siblings die and other family members. And they're in this area that we have visited you know, in Spokane, the cemetery, like we were like a Mexican family where yeah. we'd go have a picnic at the cemetery with our relative. Like, you did? Oh, yeah. Uh, but, so, but you're Catholic family. Irish Catholic. So it's, yeah, you know, but we just loved, we just had to stop by all the time. If we were on the north side, it's like we got to 
will pop in and say hello to Henrietta. Uh-huh. Your so, grandparents? Yeah. And so it, it suddenly occurred to me that that's meaningful. Like, that not everyone has that. Like, right. that's this meaningful thing. And then... I had happened to talk to this woman who sells cemetery plots there. And she goes, you know, the spot right next to your two brothers is available. And I was like, I'm in. I am so in. And then, <laughs> and then anyway, then I have two other siblings. So I was trying to get them to buy the spots next to me. And they were like, I don't want to be next to Aunt Barbara. Like, <laughs> oh, really? Became... Right, like, well, it was like, well, what if my husband and will my husband and I be together? And then my other sibling was like, well, but I don't want to be next to her husband. <laughs> Oh, because you, I mean, you got to buy more than you do. You have to buy. Well, like, no, you can have up to four. Actually, we could all go in one plot. Right. They've just upped it from two people to four people can be in one plot. What, have they changed the distances or is it? No, because people are cremated now. Oh. So it used to be you couldn't be cremated if you were Catholic. Oh. But they changed the rules. So now it's a, just a heyday at the cemetery oh, really? because you can pack a whole bunch of people in a plot. And it's cheaper to cremate, I guess. Oh, yeah. You Especially to... if you're not in town when you die. <laughs> <laughs> Transportation's easier, right. cheaper. Right, you just go on yeah, the plane, you're just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so it, it's funny, it's not morbid. I think the Catholics are pretty good at that. I think there's, a, like, the idea of having, you know, lunch at a cemetery or whatever, there's a comfort with death. Oh, my and God. Sort of... I find that so true, like... It's a morbid religion. Actually, really. my daughter <laughs> just said, because my husband's... Um, they're they're Jewish atheists basically, and and proud third generation Jewish atheists. Sure. And my daughter said to me recently, you know, um, Dad's side of the family they don't talk about they don't even believe in an afterlife. Right. But they don't talk about people dying and that right. much. But your side of the family they all believe in this afterlife, even though she knows I don't. And yet. You know, you're totally comfortable talking about being dead and this person's going to be dead and soon we'll all be dead and right. soon we'll all be in the ground. And I think that's a healthy, I like it. Well, I think however you can accept death, <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a good way to go. Yeah. I, I, because you know, that, that's the one thing we all don't want to confront or we want to deny. But I think you get to a certain age. Like, I never really thought about it as, like, I always knew that I would die. But, you know, when you get older, you're sort of like, well, am I, I, that, it might be soon. Right. And and am I doing everything I need to okay, be doing? Okay, here's or? my new thing. Because yeah. I actually am really trying to think about death a lot. Why? I think it gives me this more palpable sensation with being alive. Like, just think about it. To accept it and realize yeah, it and to it. live. Yeah, accept it. Like, kind right. of contemplate death. You know, like, just to have it. But anyway, my new thing yeah. is that when I see babies anywhere, yeah. I think, when that baby's my age, yeah. I won't be alive. Oh, that, Yeah. Like, that, that's this new, ooh, and that, it gives you a little tingle. Does it? You yeah, little, like, little, wow. Get a little bump it's from that? It's coming up. It's yeah. soon, uh, I will not be around. Oh, but I don't like that. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know why that makes me Well, How old are you? Do you calmer. talk about it? Um, yeah, I'm oh. 54. I'll be 55. Well, it's not coming. Yeah. It's that time of life, though. Doesn't it feel like puberty, but of the later age? Yeah, but with nothing to look forward to. But oh, come on. It's Isn't it so much better being older? I don't know. Oh my God, it's so much better. Every year is so much better. I, I think so because you, you, you all the stuff you don't care about exactly, anymore. Exactly, it fades. Oh my God. Yeah, that's true. I, but why couldn't it go the other way? Why couldn't it start like that? Which it does, I guess, as a baby. But that that middle period where everything's a panic yeah. and everything. Yeah. But I mean, you you had cancer. Yeah. So you must have had these. You must have looked no, at. No, I didn't think I would die. I had a well. I was a believer then, for one thing. I believed that God was. 
I mean, not like a weird believer, but I had this sense of destiny about myself that was completely uninformed and was wrong. it uh, Jesus oriented? Um, no, I was more, you know, I thought it was just an energy. You know, sure. I had a kind of new age slash cat slash yeah. Catholic thing. Yeah, very vague, unspecific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I just had this sense that I was going to survive. Yeah, well, you were right. I was right, <laughs> but I could have been wrong. I guess, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, you don't believe in any spiritual mojo? You don't um, believe in any, like, you know, maybe you well, just... what does that mean? I well, I just mean, like, you don't, uh, you, there's nothing mystical? Are you that practical about... Well, but uh, I find just, I know, I'm going to, now, I'm just going to be so hateful, because I will say being alive right the second is mystical. I mean, like... Okay, yeah. But I don't think there's any um, knowledgeable being or energy that knows right. anything about me or right. would care anything about me right but maybe you just had a sense maybe that that the, something inside of you knew that you weren't going to die well it was an easy cancer oh <laughs> it was really like so it was actually a doctor that convinced <laughs> no, you no no right it was yeah. cervical cancer and it's like i was gonna survive like yeah, the doctor yeah, said yeah. i've never had one person not survive this cancer so <laughs> it wasn't nothing <laughs> mystical about medicine i but guess like people will say well you've confronted death and i was like oh that was so not confronting death but your brothers died yeah but he had lymphoma and I, stage four like so that's when they found it yeah oh my god where yeah. was it it was everywhere it was everywhere and he had no idea no because he didn't have medical insurance but there was and, no symptoms? Yeah, he was having he had weird things like he would have a leg ache, like like a headache, but mm-hmm. a leg ache. And then he had a toothache and then he went to the dentist, but they were like, Your teeth are fine and uh-huh. and that's a kind of icky cancer. And then he was he didn't he didn't have insurance, so he's going to free clinics and right. you know, it wasn't necessarily although the free clinics can be great, but they weren't gonna do all the tests to really sure. find out. Oh, that's a so sad that by thing. the time he found out it was really so you did confront death at least with him. Oh yeah, yeah. Horrible. And then I had another brother die last summer, uh, two summers ago. Of alcoholism and drug addiction. Yeah. Cancer, alcoholism, drug yeah, addiction. It's everywhere. Alcoholism's hard. Did you grow up with that? Yeah. And who? My dad. Oh really? And yeah, every yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's kind of part of it when you're Irish Catholic I, for many people. It, it definitely <laughs> is part of it. And he 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 remained alcoholic. Well, I mean, no, he never he sobered had, up. No, he sobered up. He had, um, he went. He had like a really like a nervous breakdown at one point, and then he went away to a mental hospital for a year, and then he was, and so he was sober there. Mm-hmm. How and, old were you? Um, twenty six or something uh-huh. like that. So you were out. You you yeah. You'd with we you had withstood the storm already. Yeah. 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 And then. He, and then he was up and back on it. You yeah. Know, like it was just like, it's just a so, the whole thing of just, it's just so tough. Oh, I know. I, you know, I'm sober myself, but it's just very interesting to me how like there is some offspring of right. alcoholics that right. become alcoholics and the other ones become very close friends of alcoholics. Right. <laughs> and, you know, well, sometimes I think I'm so lucky that my drug was food, actually. Is that what it was? you can survive that. Yeah. I mean, like, that doesn't... Right. Unless you really go crazy. Right. You really... That's a much more survivable, stress-reducing mechanism than and that alcohol was And that drugs. was your thing? Yeah, it is my thing. It still is? Yeah. <laughs> sure. It's... I can feel it in my body. Like, when I feel stressed out, I want to eat, and it does the job. It right. absolutely... My blood pressure goes down. Right. I get focused. Like, yeah. it absolutely does the job. And I know that's the feeling my brother and dad had, for example. 
And what did that was alcohol. Yeah. How old was your brother with the alcoholism? Uh, he just two years ago. Let me see. Fifty-two. Oh God! So he even had it bad, huh? Yeah, for years and years. Oh man! And just like the teeth going and. Oh my God! It was really sad, and he was the loveliest, most, the brightest, funniest. Oh uh, God! Damn it! Yeah. But did you end up like? Yeah, I mean, what? How did it manifest itself in the house? Was it? Was was he just like your old man? Was he? Was he raging or was he just? No, uh, that was the my mom. They had an interesting dynamic. My mom would be raging because he was drinking. Yeah. He became the nicest, most complimentary <laughs> guy. So we all kind of were mad at my mom for being so mad at him. Right. You know, as an adult, I look back and think he was completely checked out. And like another kid, she yeah. was having to handle all this stuff. Right. And that must have been crazy. And there making. were five kids. And there's five kids. But my dad was the, like, I went to a like teen, you know, children of alcoholics, Alateen. Yeah. And people were like, my dad beat me and my dad did this. And I like, my dad um, recites James Joyce (laughs) to himself (laughs) and tells you that he loves you so because you're so smart and life is fleeting. (laughs) That was your... (laughs) That was his drunk. That was your war story. Yes, right. So hard. So hard. Yes. What was he? He, you mean his profession? Yeah, uh, he was a U.S. attorney, actually. So, so he was like he was a he was a functioning functioning alcoholic. functioning alcoholic. Yeah, just at home and on weekends. Yeah, after well, work. Yeah, I, uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened before trials. What, and so what, forth. what does a U.S. attorney do? What does that mean? Well, it's his a, specialty. Um, there's all these Native Americans in mm-hmm. Washington State on the east side of the state where I'm from mm-hmm. who are on reservations. And whenever the government would find any piece of land there that was good, like a river, right, they would then go in and take it away from the Native Americans. And he was the main guy who knew how to take the land back. So he represented the Indians. No, oh. he was on the government side oh. saying, "Oh, we made a mistake. The map was it, it's, it's really this is that's the map. what's his negotiation. He would negotiate with tribal leaders, yeah. about why and they can't really live there anymore. It was really sordid and terrible. It was horrible. So he had to drink. No, he did. And then they, and then the reservations, that drinking. I yeah. mean, like, it's just everywhere. But it was, I don't think he liked doing that part of it. it. It seems like a hard gig. I never understand how lawyers who do nefarious things, how how they rationalize it. Well, he, the, it was really complicated, the Native American thing. Because then the tribal leaders would get the money and then how they would spend them. Like, right. because it wasn't, it was supposedly communally owned. This is pre-casino. Yes, it's yeah. pre-casino. Yeah. And so it was really, I don't even want to paint it that he was the bad guy, because in some ways he was the good guy because he could get this money that could establish certain things on the reservation right. that would help everyone instead right. of just these two chiefs who said right. they should get all the money. But so that was his a, whole thing. Right. And that's what you grew up in. Yes. And what did your, your other siblings end up doing? What is your? Yeah. Uh, my mom was a houswife. and or, Is she and, still around? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you wrote about her in the new book. Yeah. yeah. And... um. My sister Meg moved to Japan, right? She went to law school and took out huge loans to go to law school. And in the middle of her third year, realized that her calling was to teach nursery school. And she had like $150,000 in law school loans. So she found out about this sort of indentured servant program where you could go to a place in Japan, live in like a dorm. Yeah. You don't get paid for two years. All you do is teach English conversation all day. Yeah. And they would pay your student loans off. Wow. So- 27 years ago, whatever, she did that. For two years. For two years, fell in love with Japan, felt like she was really Japanese, 
also it was conveniently thousands of miles away from my parents. Right. And she's never, she, when she visits, but she's like now lived in Japan longer than here. And she speaks Japanese fluently. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. wow. And she's married to Siyoshi. And, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I've gone many times to visit her. Is Japan and, great? It's great when you have a sister who lives there who can... Right. You, first of all, you can just laugh at all this stuff together. Oh, right. my God. Yeah. They are so into the rules. Like, a lot of structure. A lot of structure. And also such nonverbal communication. So much isn't even... It's not just that you don't know Japanese. You have to learn this whole other... Very, it's interesting. Do, do you find it interesting that the, the daughter of an alcoholic would go and seek such a controlled environment? <laughs> no. It yeah, makes make, perfect right? sense. Exactly. Yeah, No, no. She feels very safe in everything right. there. Yeah, that's like that's amazing that she went that way with her control freakness. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And now, um, and she's doing great. Actually, she's really happy. She's she's in a good place. Great. What's the other one? Do? And the other one, um, he lives in Seattle. He's married with twins that are just a year younger than my daughter, so thirteen. And he works for this. He he does an internet something I don't understand, but he's very very successful. Great. Yes. And so everyone's good. Yeah. So yeah. all right. So you're going to your your Spokane, Washington. You go to high school. You go to college in Seattle. Yeah. I become an accountant. You did not. Yes. Oh my God! Another controlling profession. <laughs> I know it wasn't for me ultimately. I uh, good. Yeah. See, I'm, see, I'm 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 projecting because like I always think it's it's wild to me what I was gonna say. Is that the children of alcoholics either become alcoholics and drug addicts or control freaks? Oh, really? Well, oh. yeah. I Ma- wonder if I'm a control freak. I don't I think don't, you don't feel like what? one. Well, no, because like usually it's because you're in this position with a grown right. person, right. That's completely out of control all the time, right? So, like, and you're 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 constantly yeah. you can't do anything about this primary situation in your life so when you get out of that you're like i'm gonna keep it tight you know what i mean like there's a a reaction i have a lot of friends whose parents drank that don't drink at all and i actually like to drink i drink i mean i don't i don't have a problem with it right i like it and i I find that unusual it's like usually no drinking or have a problem with it well you're lucky you're you're you're, i was lucky that way yeah so how long were you an accountant five years really yeah after college yeah so you didn't come down to L.A.? No, I moved to L.A. to be an accountant. That's how I came here. I was like, oh, I'm going to take this city by storm to be an accountant. No, are you serious? Yes. Were you a show business accountant? Yes, I worked at Columbia Pictures in the Participation Accounting Department. With no desire to be on, in show business. Well, I had been in a play in high school. <laughs> Which one? Uh, Romeo and Juliet, where I played the nurse. Mm-hmm. And... Um, No, I had flirted with that idea because I had a sort of theatrical personality. It was interesting, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel I was pretty. Like, I I still had that crazy thing that so many people still have. Like, in order to be an actor, you have to be gorgeous. And it's like, just look at the television. There's lots and lots of parts for lots and lots of people. But to me, I just, I didn't think, I felt like you had to be beautiful. Oh. Like, people would tell you, you know, like how they tell beautiful young women, you should be an actor. Yeah. People weren't saying that to me. (laughs) And, and but I wasn't. But I have to say, it wasn't like I had to be an actor. It was right. like, oh, that's interesting. And but, then, well, why why LA then? Because I love film. I had a degree oh. in film. I got a degree in economics and in film. Like and you minored I, in film. Minored in stu- film, really. Like yeah, film, film studies. Right, yeah, and like film. I love the movies. And I moved here thinking, this town, we're going to talk about film all the time. That's we're all people be talk film. about. Yeah, right. And then I 
got another to the discussion department, yeah. and it was really just an industry town like i'd oh, be going up going oh, there's an anthony mann series at lacma we should all get all the other accountants together to go and they're like <laughs> yeah let's go see the bicycle thief yeah <laughs> right and they're like i was really surprised that everyone here wasn't just really into the history of film nobody just well, another no, industry I, town so then i started going to back then you know this is so back then yeah. um I was at all like the Vista and the like. I started seeing people and I made at friends. At the revival we houses, all, yeah, at the revival yeah. houses. So yeah. I would sit in the first five rows, and I made all these friends who were in who were really interested in film. Film nerds, yeah, film nerds. That yeah. was my first group. Uh huh. Were yeah. they like mostly what heavy set men who? <laughs> I was really popular. <laughs> 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 I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> People showing you their magazines and signed. Uh, They're like, I, there was a lost reel of intolerance. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got to pray. Uh, I just didn't want to know if you want to come over. <laughs> so and, then, um, and then I read a review of the Groundling Theater and I signed up for classes. And then Phil Hartman was one of my teachers. Just and that for was, fun? Well, yeah. Yeah. You were an accountant. You're like, this sounds fun. Yeah. The, it said in the ad. We teach classes for non-professionals. And if it had not said, like, non-professional actors, I would never have gone to Oh, the really? I thought, oh, it's like, you know how lawyers need to learn improv. Like, sure. Well, I think a lot of people do that for people yeah. skills. Yeah. Yeah. So I went, and it was just blew my mind. Like, it completely, my how, head exploded. Like, why? I knew that it was for me. Like, this was what I was just... Right when you got there? Ever, what was it about Yes, it? it was so... And I, by the way, I wasn't good. Yeah, <laughs> it was did. not. It wasn't about being good. In fact, yeah. I flunked the first level. You did, um, but I just knew it was like doing cocaine or something. Yeah. It was like, in fact, I was just telling my husband recently that in my first class, I three times out of the twelve classes, I parked and couldn't get out of my car to go into the class because it was so powerful to me what was happening in that class, getting up and making up characters and saying what came to your in your head really you were just overwhelmed it was too much like that was too big really it was too big like what what, what was that feeling like it was just like you just you couldn't you're get... just so high from it and laughing so hard and getting to laugh with other people and making something together that was funny together oh my god what did you not have friends during childhood i don't know, <laughs> I don't know. it was just really Amazing. And that there was stuff you could learn. Like, you know, in improv, there's rules, you know, like... So Phil could... Hartman was your first teacher? No, he was my second. Who when was I had to repeat, oh. um, Randy Bennett. Uh-huh. And he was a teacher there at the Growlings. And then Phil Hartman was my next teacher. And then we became good friends. And then he got on SNL a few years later. And then he... But who else was there? Like, Let's go through the... the... Uh, Kathy Griffin was probably my closest person there. Uh-huh. And... You were um, friends? Yeah. Lisa Kudrow. Uh-huh. And this is when, but, but this is in your class, not when you. How did it? How does it work again? You did the, well. You do you classes for the, a couple of years, and you work your way up, and then you get into the Sunday company, and then you get into the main company from that. How long did it take you to get to the main company? Like not that long. I actually went pretty quick. It was yeah. like a couple of years of classes in like a year, and then I was in the main company only briefly and got on SNL. You were like one of the lucky ones. Really lucky. In fact, it was it was sort of between Kathy Griffin, Lisa Kudrow, and me. And when I got it, I thought, I just hope those two girls have careers. <laughs> they did I really, right. Because they deserve it. 
Because <laughs> obviously <laughs> I'm launched into the super career and I hope they do okay. They did all right. <laughs> so anyway, of course, they've done huge. Mm. So you're, te- you're, you're learning with Phil Hartman, who's a sweet guy. Really sweet. And yeah. and who else is in your classes? Anyone else I would know? Um, or was those well, like- that was the other great thing about the Groundlings is that I understood how show business worked because everyone there didn't just become an actor. Like some people went in, there was a lot of people doing puppetry stuff like who went right. with the Muppets there was that connection some people started writing and producing commercials oh, so you learned that there some people well I didn't learn those things but I made connections with people who did many many things in show business and they were using the groundlings as yeah and so you were kind you of you learn how yeah to... you learned like I was like oh I see how this business works like you kind of learn how to do a whole bunch of things and then you see which things are popping up for you. Yeah, what, how do you apply your talent? Right. And yeah. then, and then of course, it's 90% luck too. So I, It is. Yeah, yeah. But, but like smarter, talented people who go a little below the radar, they seem to have longevity that that people that go for in front of the camera don't necessarily have. Like if, if you want to yeah. get into commercials or producing commercials or perhaps puppetry yeah. or perhaps writing. Or writing on shows, a lot of writers. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, yeah, and they're the smart ones. Yeah. But those of us who are like, I want to be on front of the, ca- I want to be on stage. That's where it gets hard. It is hard. I feel like I've had a good mix of yeah. all the things. Well, yeah, and you've you know leveled off with all this. You know, you I think you really did something uh, comfortable with your career, and you stayed yeah. doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like as opposed to just beat your head against a wall trying to get cast out here. You know, well, I when I look back on it now that I'm older, mm-hmm. um, I wish I had been more tenacious and ambitious. Actually, about my like in some ways I was. I definitely had fantasies of being successful, but I didn't have work skills that I the work skills that I wish I had to really back it up I'm you know like if I would have given myself a note I'd go work harder yeah but would you <laughs> do that harder. anyways I mean do you do that any, about everything yeah so it doesn't really apply <laughs> yeah, then. no and plus it's a waste of time <laughs> that's just that. your form of <laughs> self-loathing is that um, you're not doing enough yeah maybe maybe <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I could see that. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I have that too. Is that? Yeah. Uh, like, I always think that I'm like just a, a little more disciplined away. Right. From what? I don't know. From I that know. Uh, that guy's career. From right. not, if I'd done this, it right. would have happened the the other way. It's it, it's just a bad. It's a no, faulty no, it's, wire. That's the icky. That's the one I would say icky thing about getting older is ruminating. The the opportunity to ruminate over such a vast amount of time over what you might have done, right. and so, and that is definitely not good about getting older. Well, I, I mean, I've tried to uh, like that's I've been very sort of kind of vigilant about not doing that about yeah. about not having regrets and having acceptance right of of what happened and why right it happened. I know that's big it's hard that is a real talent. well I was fortunate in that I, you know I, nothing happened for me until I was oh, in my forties. Really, you know, like I didn't really start making a, a living until I came out here in the garage. So because it happened so late, that's so funny. Because I, I guess in show business, you never know how people really are in their. Living. No, just because they're on TV and, doesn't mean. And like to me, because you were such a well-respected comic, and right. because I liked you, I just assumed you You're doing fine. Yeah, like I didn't nah. really know, nah. you know, how people were doing it. Never selling tickets <laughs> took a long time, but I think because my my real success, or like I sort of landed in my groove in my in my late forties. <laughs> uh, it's it's a lot easier for me to 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 kind of look at my life as like well, I guess it was all leading here, not not like you know, right? You know, it's about fucking time. Yeah, I don't have that. 
You know, like, yeah, well, no, after no. all those missed because, opportunities. Because, and also because when you're older, you know so many people who are so talented and worked really hard and they didn't that's do well. And, like, that is just the thing. way it goes. That's like, it's that's the most hard, like that's, that's some evolution. Sad, that is the saddest thing, man. Isn't but I, I was going to say, I recently did the Uncap. Actually, I'm saying recently. I think it was like a year ago. Somebody else was on the show who came up and said this thing that kind of fucked me up for like six months where he's like, what I remember before you got on SNL, or maybe it was just as I, or I don't know, whatever he said. He was like, I was working for a development and you were going to be the next big thing. I mean, you were, everyone was running around at CBS saying, you are going to star in it. And you, and wow, and what, where are you living yeah. now? And I was like, oh, oh my God. And then first I was like, is that really true? And then I thought, it might have been for 10 minutes, but even like it was really, it took me so long to process that conversation. Horrible. Horrible. The worst. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you could have had this long career on television as this lovable person who was in syndication. Everybody said so. Yeah. I've, I've had that happen once or twice. Not to that degree, but yeah, we thought you were going to, I'm like, no, it didn't. It wasn't apparently right <laughs> that wasn't the way it went and then now i live in this town where people know me from snl if they know me a lot yeah. of people, i thought no one would know me i really thought i was past that time like right. i had reached never not when you create the a character that that was such a national phenomenon like i was thinking about before you came over i'm like there was a period there where people were dressing up for Halloween as Oh, Pat. yeah. I think it probably might still Todd happen. Todd Rundgren and his whole band dressed up as Pat yeah. for Halloween. Yeah. And sent me a picture of them. Like, that was Yeah. Big. It was huge. But I didn't... I felt like I didn't look like Pat. <laughs> <laughs> My joke is that now I've grown into looking like Pat. I didn't realize I was dressing up as myself in the Years future. Later. Like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> was was that character, was that a, something you created at the Groundlings? Yeah. It was? Yeah. See, I'm fascinated by that whole thing, how many how people show up with their characters. So, yeah. So, okay, so you're in the Groundlings, you do the classes for two years, you're in the Sunday crew, right. and then you're in the, the main, main crew. Company. Mm -hmm. So that's about four years in. Yep. And you're already, what, 30 almost? almost I was just, and I had to lie because they were looking for women under 30 and men um, up to age like 45. It was right. completely blatantly horrendous. yeah. yeah. And I was just turning 30, and I lied by one year about my age, which was so ridiculous. I should have, like, if you're going to lie about your age, just go for yeah, it. Take <laughs> a few off. But yeah. I said, I'm 28 instead of 29 or right. whatever. Yeah. So that I would seem, like, not close yeah, to yeah. the yeah. edge. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I was about that age, because I had done the accounting, and right. then I did the other thing. And yeah. and how what was how the audition happen? Um, well, there was, like, a year of increasingly more important person coming from the SNL world to see us uh -huh. where I my name was still in a group of names they were looking at right so and then that went on for so long it just seemed like that was going to be the rest of my life like, yeah. like there were so many incrementally more important persons yeah. before you got to Lauren Michaels right. that it would be a lifetime of doing <laughs> crowning shows before you would ever get the chance to audition to and meet then, the wizard and then he came to the show mm -hmm. um, what year with Alice his then assistant secretary, who then became his wife. Mm -hmm. This is 89, I guess. Yeah. And it was Kathy Griffin and Lisa Kudrow and other, you know, they came to the show. Yeah. And then they had me fly to New York and do. Well, then it was kind of like, we've picked you. And, right. But, but, but there's still a final hurdle. You got to go in the studio, right? Which is 
go do your sketches for the cast and writers of SNL in a room. I've never heard that one. Yes. So you were cast, or no? You, the, the fine... Well, it was like they were negotiating a deal, but I, but it wasn't for sure that I was getting it till I did this final audition. So, oh, so you go. So who was there? It was me and my ex-husband, who was in the Groundlings at the time. So we had some sketches we Who's did. Who's your together. ex-husband? Steve Hibbert is. His oh name. right, yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah. He, I didn't know you were married to him. Yeah. You were married to him when you before you did the Groundlings. Uh, no, I married him while I was at the Groundlings. Oh, yeah. Why do I know him? He was he was he in was, things. He was the Gimp in Pulp Fiction. Is probably his most famous thing. Yes, I've met him before. How long were you married to him? Just a few years. <laughs> this is not your favorite thing to talk about. No, I don't even want to bring this up. <laughs> Let's go out of that time. Let's. <laughs> Why was it such a bad no, time? No, no, it wasn't even bad. No. We're still friends. We still we still text text each other occasionally. Why the shame? No, because I just you know what's so funny is like it's like I I don't know why that is. Yeah, I don't know why that is because I'm open about it, obviously. Yeah. Right, but it feels like a failure. It feels like it didn't work. Like that's right. a bad mark on your. Resume on resume. your marriage yeah, resume. Yeah, like yeah, my marriage resume. It's not of a plus. Uh, you, you never saw yourself as a no, divorced you, you got person. Like a D plus. Oh, so what? <laughs> I know exactly. I agree with that. Why do I feel that way? That's Catholic. Yeah, should have stuck in there forever. <laughs> but anyway, he came with me, and um, and it was it was he was like very supportive, and like I did a lot of stuff alone, and then I did a couple sketches so you, with you sh- him. You showcase characters. Yeah, then I come out as a character. Oh my god, what, what I think were the of characters? It, thank God I was so oblivious to really everything because you were in it. it you were like so... you were doing characters. That's I remember what Dennis did. Miller was really nice to me, and then Phil was there. Of course, he was nice to me, and John Lovitz ha- was had just left, but he was around, so they they were supportive. So did you do Pat? <laughs> Yeah, and I did Pat. But they, you know, Pat wasn't my big character, though. I did this other character called Mia Culpa. Uh-huh. And she apolo- and she was really like making fun of my inner me. Uh-huh. And it was just apologizing for everything, like right. hitting something. I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's broad, but whatever. An- another uncomfortable was, character. Right. But that was my character. That's what I thought was my linchpin character. And then Pat, because Pat wasn't very developed. Like, it wasn't. Like, but that was part Mia, of Pat, I had a right? whole history for her. Like that, that was like my character that I understood. And Pat was really more of a joke. You know, like it was a few jokes. Uh huh. I mean, I developed something for Pat later, but at the time that I auditioned, it so you was did Mia Culpa, kind Pat, of Pat. And... I did a character probably like my mom. Uh huh. Well, how's she? Um. Well, she. I mean, now it's me. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because Mia Culpa and Pat. This sort of like, you know, very diplomatic, kind of well, apologetic. And, yeah, Mia's just, Mia talked like that, and uh, she was just, I'm so sorry. I, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, do you want water? I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm saying I'm sorry so much. I hate that. I I'm so that. sorry. I'm sorry. Remember, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was that character. Do, then I it, had. Is that in you, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It drives my husband crazy. I can't tell you. Once, you know, every couple of weeks, he'll look at me and say, Will you please stop apologizing? It's driving me mad. Oh, it's interesting. And it's so in me. And it's. But it's not your mom. No, my mom is actually no apologies. <laughs> right. So, but then my mom is more like, um, she's like Midwest, you know, like, although it's from Spokane. My mom is sort of the demanding. Was she angry? Of, well, you said she used to yell at your daddy a lot. Yeah, but she's more, um, I'm so happy to be here. I need you to get me three things. A Diet Coke with a straw that bends uh, and a bobby pin. 
and a safety pin with a pink right. thing at the top. Yeah. If you could quickly go get those three things. And also, I'm starving, but I'm not eating any protein right now. <laughs> so she's happy to be there, but she's got a lot of demands. Right. All right, so you go with these characters, and yes. Dennis is there, and Phil is Everybody's there. Everybody's watching, and, yes. And horrendous. love it. And what was your experience with Lorne? Oh, so complicated. Because, Good. you know, the thing is, I really still love it. I still have approval dreams of him. Oh, And powerful. I wake up, and I'm so upset about it. Like, I'm so mad at my subconscious. Wow. Yeah, so like, you know, but, like where uh, he's like, yes, that was a good, you know, yeah, whatever. I've but okay, but okay, so you with. go do the so thing deep. for you go the you go do the thing to audition yeah. for everybody. He was really nice to me. He was there. Yeah, he was there. Yeah, he's really nice. Yeah, and then who told you you got the job? I think it was my agent. Uh huh. And so you, but moved he said, so, he, I think he probably said something cryptic like. We'll have you. I believe there'll be many Thanksgiving uh, shows. You know, like they said something that was like I would be there. Right, but not. And then I remember welcome. when I got there, he gave me a gift of water glasses, like these really expensive water glasses. And it was like, these will last you at least for the 10 years ahead that you will be on the show. Like it was so, like, really great. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. And then, yeah, then I just seemed to just. Him at every really well no i don't know i yeah. don't know well how is it like tricky so like you you started doing you were on you were doing big parts right away right, right? away i had the most was incredible for, like the my first show out of the gate i had big scenes characters everything yeah <laughs> and then um i haven't figured out exactly what happened really? i feel like it didn't get bad but i de- i left before my contract was up on on your uh, own volition? On my own volition, which yeah. I think was like not what they didn't like that. But, but I being... wasn't, in one whole year, I was not the comedic driving force of one single sketch in an entire year. So you're just, you were so put I on the bench. Gone, yes, I was benched. And you're living in New York. Did you yeah. like that? I loved it. Yeah. I loved New York. And did you like uh, at that time where, so I imagine be, being someone who is, you know, a, a little hard on theirself, you know, being benched for a year. Oh, it was real. Oh, my God. I cried so much. I Just, cried, 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 cried. And what? The writers weren't writing you in? How does it work? Well, I was... When I got on the show, there's this woman, Christine Zander, who was yeah. there, who's a writer from Second City. Fantastic woman. She's written on a whole bunch of shows. We immediately became best friends. We wrote every single sketch together. Uh-huh. And then she left. And so I... Even though I was still cast in lots of things other people did, there was, when she left... You didn't have the new I material. Just, there was just, it was almost like they felt like we were a team and then right. why was I still there? Right. You know, like I, like everything seemed to dry up. And then also there was a lot of young men who were really f- like on the show yeah. that were like, and some I like, like David Spade and a lot of them. They all great, came when you were there. But they didn't cast me. Well, right. actually David Spade, I have to say, wrote a couple things specifically for me that he wasn't even in, like the greatest thing you could do for somebody yeah. that were really funny. But like they would, Adam. And I would Norm only and... be at the I, I Norm. Yeah. And to <laughs> me, I was first of all, I was a little older than them, not that much, but right. to them, five years older and not being, you know, their idea of hot probably yeah. made me like thirty years older. Right. So like, I couldn't get cast in anything unless I remember. <laughs> even though I like Adam Sandler, but I remember moments where they go, "Well, all I can think of how to use you is the example of the unattractive choice." <laughs> Oh, no. I know. 
repeat? And I go, that was said out loud? Yeah. Uh. You know, hard, really tough. And when I look back on it, I think I couldn't have, it was more than I, I needed, I couldn't, I wish I'd been tougher. Yeah. I wish I'd been like, fuck you, and just written my own stuff and pushed it through but instead i was like i have to go lick my wounds for five hours now oh you know really hard yeah 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 so that's that thing you were talking about in terms of like looking back you wish you'd been a little more uh not ambitious but just sort of like um confident yeah like i just think you know you're not worse than any of these other people get in there and did you Duke feel it like out. it was, a, it, did it become a boys club? I mean, kind of, is that what it really was? I it mean, was then. I mean, and then it was like the heyday of the women came after. Right. I mean, many years after. Because. I mean, several years after. Because like Adam and David and like I, the guys who were writing And it was for them very and, sophomoric humor. And I don't say sophomoric in a negative way. Like right. Adam Sandler's songs made me laugh really hard. Right. In fact, there probably... Adam Sandler made me laugh harder than anyone on SNL just goofing around backstage making crank calls and stuff. Uh-huh. But it was really not... I can't think... My humor doesn't come out of right, that. Sure. And I can't... I don't know how to mesh with it. And, right. And I actually don't even like it. Right. Like, I wouldn't go to see it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, at a theater. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't... You, and so it was so wrong for me. It was just I couldn't. Fit so the in. whole yeah, the whole tone of the show changed, yeah. and when you lost your one ally, and that. But this is the question: Is that Lauren just lets this happen? Well, you know, I feel like he's managing an ecosystem where he's letting things die, and sometimes I think he probably looked at me like a flower that had bloomed and had. Now was no longer so he just he, he just sort of like he doesn't really step in if the dominating force is successful comedically, right? And people are taking initiative. He's like, okay, that's what's happening now. Uh, yeah, you and su- actually, may, well, who's to say that's not the right way to be to survive for that show? I mean, and no, maybe I, I, I had stopped blooming. Like also, like I wasn't thinking of sketches anymore. It wasn't in relation just, to that show. Like I wasn't like for years. I was like, oh, this would be a funny bit, or yeah. that'd be a funny bit, and. And then I just was thinking of bigger, deeper things. Like I wasn't thinking that way anymore. You were getting older, and I was getting older and, and grown up. Yeah, and there were other issues at I hand. I mean, I, now I'm feeling like I'm making this sound like I got so mature that, I, but and I don't even. But feel there's that. Nothing, well, there's no reason to be ashamed of that. I mean, I don't know. I, I, don't know. I know. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's okay to outgrow SNL. I mean, yeah, I, but you know what? I didn't know. I didn't know that that kind of excitement of being on that show and having this sense of being at the center of the universe with these huge stars coming in that you get to work with intimately for a week. Yeah. I really thought, even in my middling level of ambition, it was just going to keep being like that in some different forms. Right. And it really wasn't. Right. It was really over. Like that part of... That excitement, that feeling of walking out on a live show with that many people watching and that much on the line and nailing it or almost nailing it that kind of high getting those skills rewriting stuff at the last minute reading off the cue cards because you don't even know what's been written yeah that i thought was going to continue on in these other more deeper more artistic forms right and in some ways they did but it was never that exciting i mean like nothing was as exciting as that i mean that was just as showtime at snl yeah yeah and so i feels like that's something then you have to it's almost i always think it's like being in a war like 
post-traumatic stress po- syndrome. Yeah, but yeah. in a like the camaraderie of right. the war, like in the positive way. Like we right. were in the battle. We got out there. This guy did this. I did that. Yeah. And then you spend the rest of your <laughs> life going, my life's so much happier now. But nothing was more exciting than those battles. No, right. Adjusting to real life. Right. Yeah, so so when you were benched, it must have just been heartbreaking. Oh, my God. And you had to get out of there because you, yes. well, you didn't want to be the crying person. Oh, I know. And I cried so much. God <laughs> damn it. I wish I, I'm just <laughs> mad at myself. Like, what? Stop crying. Oh, give yourself a break, Julia. Okay. Come on. Enough already. <laughs> I'm like, oh, but my <laughs> sketches went cut again. <laughs> like, when I think of that, I just want to slap myself. But anyway. But, I, but you, you know, you, you had felt that high. You'd been to the front. Yeah. And I know, now, but and, I mean, it's hard to have that perspective when the front is still happening, but you're not in the forces in the front of the front. Well, that that must have been the, <laughs> the, the life struggle then. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to paint too big a picture about it. I came back and did a lot of things that I loved and Right, you're not, not completely and, martyring yourself. Right, and yeah. I did a lot of much more satisfying artistic things. Well, what, what, I mean, what, what were those years like right after? I mean, what? so well, you then quit. I, well, then I got cancer. My brother got cancer. So that was, that kind of took, well, I did. Reality stepped in, in the worst well, way the possible. Well, the first, this is what happened. I left SNL. Yeah. It's Pat was opening, which it's not like I thought it would be a huge hit, but I right. had no idea it was going to be like a 0% Rotten Tomatoes rating. Yeah. yeah. The example of the so, lowest rated a, film of all time. So you get hit when you're down. The movie opens. I was in Seattle on the opening weekend and an Entertainment Weekly was there. I opened it up and the centerfold was like a picture of its pat saying bomb of the year. Ugh. Like just, okay. And then, and now I might be mixing up, but in within a month, let's say, these things happen, and my brother calls and he's been diagnosed with cancer and has no insurance, and then I get cancer. <laughs> so that was a bad leaving SNL year. That was not Horrendous. a good year. Horrendous. So once you dealt with the cancer and once you dealt with your brother, and then you dealt with the, the, the sort of bottoming out of your career, I mean, where, where'd you get the fortitude to start? What, you know, what well, term- it was because the NCAB. Because the MCAP, because I, because Kathy were still Griffin, here. I was living here, and Kathy Griffin was doing this thing called Hot Cup of Talk at the Groundlings, right. where it was lo- kind of like an uncab thing. Yeah. I never saw myself as a stand-up. I never thought I could. Well, actually, I did take a class in stand-up, a yeah. class where they taught you to do stand-up, uh, and it was just terrible. It was terrible. Okay, so I wasn't doing stand-up, but then, and I just didn't want to do stand-up. And then Kathy Griffin said, "Come do this thing, and come to the uncab and just tell these stories," because I was. You know, dealing with my cancer, my brother had cancer. And were, but were you just, were you, how were you dealing with it? I mean, was she was, saying that because? Because I had a lot of funny, because my parents moved in with me. Yeah. To help, to, my my brother moved in with me. With the cancer. Who has the cancer. Then my parents would moved in with me to help take care of my brother, who my brother didn't want to talk to my parents or have them around. And then we're all in my tiny little house. And I'm driving my mom. My mom has to feel like she's taking care of him. So a lot of it was arranging for my mom to have the feeling that she was doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> and then my brother with his shit and, yeah. and having cancer and terrible. So you're just telling Kathy this as a friend. And she's like, you got it. No, she's like, like, and so I remember telling her something like, the way I did a bit about how my mom gets on an elevator, like she surprised the tech, like, oh, the elevator's here. Oh, oh. And I and I was like, you know, my mom and Dustin Hoffman were born on the same day. Do you think that Dustin Hoffman goes, oh, oh, the elevator's here. 
we pushed a button and it came <laughs> like that. Yeah. So she was like, you got it. Because I just had to vent about my parents. Right. So Sunday night at the Uncap just became this venting thing. So I spent a year. Do, then I got cancer. So I was able to talk about that. And then at the end of the year, I thought, well, I'll put like 40 minutes of this material together to kind of remind people to cast me in something. So I kind of set up like a thing. You at weren't the getting any gigs? Well, I, for, I just, I told everybody not to do anything. Right. Because I was dealing with so much. And also I was sick and, yeah. you know, I had all my radiation and surgeries and stuff like that. And so I was like, here I am back. And then I did a thing at the Groundlings and a lot of people were coming saying, you should do this as a one person show. Like, forget about trying to get cast on something. Just do this show. So that's right. how I did God Said Ha. And then I did it on Broadway. And then there was the film. It was and successful. Then, and it was very successful. Yeah. That's, that's So that great. was, God, I'd never do it now. Yeah. No, you wouldn't? No. Why? Wasn't it, did, did you find it uh, as exciting? You know. Stuff? No, it was totally exciting. Yeah. But you did a couple, right? Yeah. And then I did Letting Go of God. That was actually the most artistically satisfying thing I've Why ever done that, for sure. How was it different? Because it was about something I cared about more that was a harder topic. And a little abstract and more and it emotional. Was, yeah, wasn't, and it took more writing skills to, to because pull it Because it, it wasn't character-driven, yeah. and you weren't talking about your parents. And It wasn't catastrophe. It was really like, Thoughtful. How, what is my the philosophy of my life? And But entertaining. <laughs> well, well, but was there a moment where you realized God stopped functioning? No, but there was a moment when I realized that I didn't believe in God anymore. Yeah. How was that moment? It was dizzy. I felt dizzy. I actually felt physically dizzy, like I might fall down. Really? Yeah. And that, and that's because you were brought up pretty strict Catholic. No, and no. like a typical. We had a sense of humor about the right. religion. Like I don't always. Want, people always want to say you were so religious, then you weren't. It's like no, I was sort of quasi religious. But you took it for granted that God was there. Yes. Yeah. And I'd had all these experiences where I felt like, you know. Some I someone was looking out for me and it was right, going to sure. be okay sure. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that no, nobody's nobody's looking out for me. Like, he he left. <laughs> he left. He's no. He never even was. <laughs> no. You had just made him up. So there was a real like a seismic shift in. You oh know, yeah, huge. And changed it, my life in the biggest way of anything. Of but anything. horrifying at first. Um, I wouldn't say horrifying. It was just very destabilizing. Well, what was the adjustment you had to make? Accept things as they were? Yeah, I became mortal. It meant that I could get run over by a car this afternoon, and that's it. Ugh. Yeah. And, like, the... But, of course, with that, I mean, it came all this beauty, because the fragility of life is what gives it its poignancy and its immediacy. So, I got so much with it. Right. It's almost like I, I wasn't taking Valium anymore. Right. So life was as horrible and as beautiful as it is. Right. Right. Without the weird kind of, uh, there, there's something selfish about that type of relationship with God. Where you Oh start... my God. It's so narcissistic. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. it's so hard now to even talk to people about it. It was just like, I yeah. tried, because I don't like feeling condescending towards people. So I try to just get out of it. What? In, in terms the, of? When they start talking like that, I just think that's their coping mechanism. And I don't want to get into it with him right let him have it yeah let him have it yeah. yeah i think it's a big drug yeah that i think is ultimately unhelpful although quite helpful in an emergency or or in in periods of of weakness or challenge maybe yeah no yeah. i think it was yeah i think it was yeah so you're okay with it so do you oh, yeah. do you call yourself an atheist oh yeah 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 you're one of them 
I'm one of them. Uh huh. Do you talk to others gleefully? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I'm not trying to convert anyone. No. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the tolerance of people's faith is is a tricky thing for atheists. It is because there's such a dark side that most people don't see. They just the, the think of the positive. Of it. Of it. Well, not <laughs> just the history, but like, just people are so uninformed about it. It's really just about incredible. faith. Or yeah, atheism. and how religion, the insidious way organized religion works in our society, and even how anesthetized people are from reality, from even their new agey friggin' beliefs. It just mm. drives me. It's just, I have no tolerance for it. But I also don't want to get in arguments about it. Well, like, I know it's for me. I'm not trying to tell them to do anything. But that's one of the definitions of tolerance. Right. <laughs> is I'm not going to, I will respect my desire not to just rail you for your ridiculous beliefs. Right. <laughs> Doing you a favor. When yes. you're off the hook. I don't need to do that to you. Yes. But also, like, I've always thought, like, do, but would, would it be relieving to talk someone out of God? No, because it's so multifaceted in ways that and, I don't think they understand. I think the people who really believe in God don't know all the ways that belief works. Yeah. And I think you have to really, and I know this sounds like I'm inflating my own self, but I feel like you have to be a very strong person to go there in all the ways, all the surprising ways it manifests itself. Well, there's like, there, there's interesting things about you know, the, about acceptance, forgiveness, and the nature of faith that it, it does run pretty deep. I mean, to really forgive and to really accept is some tough shit. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. Even though I think those words, like the whole forgiveness thing, I think is so overplayed. I, I don't know if it is because, yeah, did you see that 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 Philomena movie? No. With uh, Judy Oh, Dench? no, I haven't, but I have it. You should see it. But I haven't seen it. There's a moment in there where she plays forgiveness, you know, to right. someone who oppressed her. Right. Where she, you know, and I, I can, I, if it's spoiling the movie, whatever. No, 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 I know, I know what the movie's about. But that moment where, where she plays the fact that she forgave the woman that basically denied her a life. Right. The way she played it, where you could feel, you but know. does the person want forgiveness? No. But in, in order for this person to live a functional life. To not like, the, but the, why do you have to say forgiveness? Why can't you just say I'm letting it go? That's fine. I accept it, but I I feel like the whole forgiveness. Like, why should someone forgive something for that? Like, they shouldn't be forgiven for that. Doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. No, but you don't but, have to think about it even. No, but, but I mean, the nature of forgiveness isn't it about you know you know see you know dealing because it comes from anger. I mean, letting go of anger is one thing, but to let go of anger with, with without some kind of forgiveness. I mean, le- letting go and accepting. On some level, that equation equals forgiveness. Yeah. I, it doesn't, yeah. you know what I mean? It, I do. You're not saying like you didn't do a horrible thing, but you know, I can't carry that. There's nothing I can do to turn back time. And and, right. and and the fact is, is that you've got your problems. You're just a flawed person. Right. And, you know, whether you did it on purpose or what, how, what, for whatever reason you did it is not my business. Right. But you did it. And, and I've got to frame that somehow. Right. Because I think there's, it's more of a sham just to let go because that'll sneak up and bite you in the ass. Yeah, I got over that. And then one day something gets triggered and it, it's not resolved in your heart. So, right. So that requires forgiveness, right? Well, yes. I have a, I feel like I grew up with a lot of my mom saying, you just need to forgive them. Like there well, was, like service. it was lip service right. forgiveness. Right, no. Now, I feel like 
because That's I don't I believe in about, free will. I can be empathetic with somebody and say, you know what? You had very little control over, like, think of, I didn't see Philomena, but the nun who did that probably isn't a very conscious person who probably didn't have a lot of choice over how she was behaving. And yeah, you could even is, go to how, how much choice sure. anyone has in That's behaving. right, but that those are the steps of forgiveness. Yes, and that way I can forgive. Like, you didn't, it wasn't even you. You were just, the, you were the forces beyond your control created, made you this person we allowed it to happen as a society. That's the real And I had thing. no power over and it. And I had no power over it, and you didn't either. And the position... And I'm not going to spend one more minute thinking about it. You know, like, that... So you'll I go, get that you'll, kind you'll, of you'll, you'll go right up to the point where you say, I forgive you, and you'll stop there. I don't like saying forgive. I do not like <laughs> the word forgive. I just think it happened. It happened. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to... I'm not upset about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to think about it anymore. But I'm not going to say I forgive you. I just don't get the forgive. I don't know. I'm bad about that, I guess. Well, I, I think it's, I think, you know, saying I forgive you is probably harder than saying, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, like, you know. What if you say I forgive you and then one minute later you're like, wait, I take it back. I don't forgive you because. <laughs> it's a wrestle. It's a wrestle. <laughs> but asking for forgiveness. Um, what about that? No, I hate anyone who asks for forgiveness. Just I want to slap them around the face. Hmm. Because I just think, don't be so needy. Like, oh, so now you did this terrible thing, and now you also have to get forgiveness from the person? Give me a break. Maybe that person is just taking responsibility. That's like, can we just talk about me? First I did a terrible thing, and now we get to have another conversation with me, and then I get to feel okay about it because you forgive me. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. Well, you don't have to forgive him. Because I know, a- but then I will because I want to make him, I'm a pleaser. So that's the real <laughs> yes, problem. Yes, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> So when did you, uh, you you adopted a baby? Yeah. And you were alone when you did it? Yeah. You were just yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Well, I was in a relationship with somebody who I was really in love with, and he was not that into me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was really into him. For how him. long? Uh, um, two or three years. And I really, and there, also huh? I was, I know, so like when I go back, I think that, he was a perfectly nice guy perfect one-year relationship yeah a perfect if i just had the insight to say it was a great year oh my god obviously we're different yeah there's no future yeah but what a year how can anyone do that but i wanted a kid and i wanted him to adopt a kid with me and he already had a kid i mean like he's completely reasonable mm-hmm. he was having difficulties financially just helping with this kid he already had yeah and um but I was like, I'd, I'll pay for everything, you know, but I can't adopt if we're not married. So I was in this awkward situation where I had to be basically saying, we have to get married so I can adopt a kid. And he's like, I don't want to be married or adopt a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like, terrible. <laughs> it was not confirm- conforming it wasn't good. to your fantasy of what we needed. And then that. we broke up and I just thought, screw it, I'll do it on my own. And part of it was like my, like... Scarlett O'Hara, like, I will. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> and... It's amazing I did it on my own. As and, I get older, I'm more amazed that I did that. And what was the process? You talk oh, about just it in a the lot book, of paperwork. Right? Yeah, just it's easy. I know people always say it's so hard. I go, really? I found it so simple. You just fill out a bunch of forms and wait. <laughs> and and you get judged as a good or a bad parent. Well, they come and talk yeah. to you, but everyone get. I mean, unless you're really a nut. Yeah. Where's your kid from? She's from China, from Guangzhou, China. Uh huh. And and when you do that, do you learn everything about her family? Or? No, nothing. Well, she was abandoned at birth, so there's nothing you know about anything. Oh, she was one of the the yeah. the, 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 the female girls. children. Yeah, 
And in fact, we just went at Christmas and visited her orphanage. She was a year and a half when I adopted her. They just leave them at the orphanage? No, they don't because it was illegal to give up a baby for a dog. It was like an impossible situation for the Chinese because there was a one-child policy. If you had a second child, you were fined up to like an average three years wages, which no one could afford. Right. Your family could inform on you, and they would also be fined if a, if a second child was found in the family. So the whole family colluded to enforce it. And then you couldn't give the children up for adoption, so they would just abandon them in places where they knew people would find them. Mm. So my daughter's story was that she was abandoned in this place, and somebody took her to the police station and said, I found this baby here. But then they told me, actually, that could have been a relative who just made up that story, right. you know, and took her to the, so they weren't implicated. Right. And then she was taken to the Guangzhou Orphanage, where wow. she was. Yeah. And, and you got her at what age? About, well, she's about 17 months, almost a year and a half. Uh-huh. And how old is she now? 14 and a half. How's she doing? Oh, she's great. Yeah? Yeah, she's good. She's a camper. That's why I'm here. Because I, she goes, because she was, um eight when we moved to Chicago and mm-hmm. she'd been going to this camp, Riverway Ranch Camp mm-hmm. near the Sequoia National Forest and she has all her friends. They go every year. Uh-huh. So now every year I come out here for a week before and I put her on the bus <laughs> as I did on Sunday Yeah, and she goes off to camp. Uh, and you found a man too. Then I found a man. How yes. old was she when you found a man? She was six and she was eight when we got married. And how'd you meet him? His brother came to a my letting go of God well, actually, no. I don't even know if that's true. He might have heard it. Or no, he came to see the show. Anyway, he wrote me a fan letter. And the fan letter, the headline was Desperately Seeking Sweeney in Law. And he said, I'm writing to propose marriage to you on behalf of my brother. I would propose myself, but I'm gay and I live in San Francisco, so I don't think it would work out. But my brother is the perfect man for you. And he blah, blah, blah about his brother, who's a scientist. And um, his big deal breaker with women is they cannot be religious in any way. Um, so you're the person for him. And I was actually writing on Desperate Housewives at the time. I was a writer on that show. And it was this weird, funny letter. And I showed it to the guys in the office next to me. And we all laughed. But I thought, but I'm not going to. I wanted to write and say, good letter. But I'm like, I'm not going to meet your brother. Because, like, call my brother. Yeah. And But my, he didn't know that the letter was being written. Anyway, so I did nothing about it. Many months later, I was doing, I was doing Letting Go of God in New York. And I came out and this woman who'd been at the show, we kind of ran into each other at the lobby. She wasn't even waiting for me. She goes, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine wrote you a letter, you know, six months ago, proposing marriage on behalf of his brother. And I was like, oh, right. And she goes, I just want to vouch for those two brothers. I've known them since junior high and they're really funny and you should write the brother. And I was like, maybe I will. And she's like, you should. And I was like, maybe I will. And then I, but I still did it. And then. Six months later, I was doing Letting Go of God again here in L.A., and I came out after the show, and I was talking to people in the lobby, and there was this handsome guy there, and he goes, I wrote you this letter a year ago proposing marriage on behalf of my brother, and I said, I go, oh, God, that's right. I go, I'm sorry I never wrote him. And he goes, no, I'm glad you didn't write him because he's an asshole. And I said, what? (laughs) And then he told me that when his brother found out that he had actually sent me this letter and everything, he had gotten so angry and they had had a falling out and weren't speaking. And he said, my whole family's so mad at me over this letter now. And in fact, my mother came out from D.C. and she saw your show, but she won't even talk to you because this letter. And I was like, oh, my God, we should meet your mother. So we went. (laughs) So now the natural sort of like, let's try to make this right. No. So then I met the mother and she was hilarious. She's like, you shouldn't be talking to us. I told him that, you know, you were going to call the FBI on him. This is creepy stalking and I was like no the letter was well written it was it was a well written letter and then she said well uh, 
I don't get involved in my son's lives at all. I'm standing out of this whole thing, but I would make a fabulous mother-in-law. <laughs> she, <laughs> she gives you the pitch. <laughs> and, and actually, she was hysterical. I was in love with her and the brother immediately. I went home, and then I really wrote to Michael to say, don't talk to your brother. It's no big deal. It was a funny letter. It's just a lark. Don't, no big deal. And then he wrote back a few le- days later. And this is head- not emails? This is this all No, this is all emails. Okay, okay. And then he wrote back three days later, and the headline was, I am mortified. And it said, I had just hoped when I found out this letter had been sent that you had some efficient assistant who would just delete a letter like that. So sorry to take your time. And then I was like, oh, don't worry about it. And then we just emailed and emailed and emailed. And then he came out to L.A. to visit. And he was cute and smart and funny. And then we got married. That's a great story. <laughs> so that's how <laughs> I got a husband. And then he has a business in Evanston. He's He makes scientific equipment. So that's why you moved out so there? So that's why I moved there. Okay. So then, and then we'll move. I still have my house here. So we'll move back in four years when Mulan goes to college. That's a great story. Yeah, it's good. So you still insist on working in show business for some reason? Um, yeah, I'm working on my little projects. Yeah? Like what? I'm writing a book of fiction and a screenplay to go with it right now that I'm hoping to develop over And this book, this years. came out, this just came out? This if was it's not last year. One thing, this is uh, to your mother? Yes, but that this was is last essays. Year. Yeah. That you wrote for the book? You've been publishing No, essays. I wrote for the book. Okay. Yeah. You like it? No, I don't. I'm out of the personal life business. I'm. T- I feel like it's. It's hard, right? Yeah, it's not. Wor- it was fine while it lasted, but like, I think once you have a kid. Yeah. Because I tell stories about Mulan in there that yeah. she goes up and back about whether it's okay or not. Yeah, know, no, like, I know. I've I've run against like that. so. Yeah. I I asked her in advance, but when you're asking an eight year old if she cares if you write, mm-hmm. it's not even like asking a person. So, and I know that's unfair, but of course I want to write it because it's funny. And then I have guilt about it. Yeah, I had that issue with my and dad and my just, girlfriend when I wrote my memoir. Yeah. No, it's so... Even though I love memoir, like your memoir, I loved it so much. Like, I felt so close to you. <laughs> and I love it, but yeah. I don't want to provide it anymore for other people, for well, myself. Well, it's hard because, you know, it's hard not to feel exploitive of your personal life. And, it's and a, you are. But Yes. And, and, and then it's are. also yes. like, you know, like I'm very sort of candid about everything. And then... Yeah, I, I like the relationship I have with fans, and I and I like what I'm doing. But but then you really start to wonder. It's like, what is private? What isn't? No, I know. Well, no, and, because it's all. And it then the all. people that are in your life, they're like, what is private and what isn't? No, it's creepy. It becomes a trust thing. Yes. Yep. Yes. No, it's terror. It's a really and and got you're lucky you got a husband because like you know now like I don't have anybody and you know my books out there my shows out here what crazy woman is going to volunteer. To be pr- well, you know. except look how I met my husband, which is fantastic. You never know; it mm. could come through having done that. Like well, if I hadn't I'm, done that, I'm more than I willing would... to make a agreement. You know, like I've I've learned my lesson yeah. in that department. Like you know, I'm a little more. Uh, I hold back. You know, oh, like yeah. like like there's some things I got to keep to myself, right? Because you don't know how it's going to pan out. I went but out. What with about a when you know it's so funny? Well, sometimes, it's so hard. But 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 I think in retrospect that you know with some distance in the moment, like I made a big announcement that I was in love with somebody and it was all going to work out, and it lasted five months, and then I'm like, now what do I do? You well, know, now, then you have to just say it didn't work out. No, I know, I know, but then it's like it's not fun. It's not a great story. No, it's terrible. <laughs> it's horrible. But that's life, right? I know, but see, I. I guess what I'm saying is I feel like I'm out of the game. The, the right. personal confession thing, I'm out of the game. I want to be in fiction now. That's what I'm interested in. Are you confident? But I hope like people like you keep doing what you're doing because I, I love it personally. I don't know how to do fiction, so so you're in luck. I, I don't know it. if I can do fiction, but I'm I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. 
Yeah. So we'll see how it is turns it, out. What, you, you, it's new to you, the, the idea? Well, of... just the idea that you can make stuff up, that yeah. you can just take these characters and you can just make up their backstory and it's make mu- up everything. It's so much fun. It must be fun. Yeah, it's fun. I've never tried it. I bet you'd be good at it. You do? I I just feel, feel like my my imagination is really limited to fear-driven things. Like my, <laughs> my my imagination is limited to dread Yeah, fantasies. but there's a lot of things you can write about that in fiction. Mm. You could use that. Right. But I guess in general, I feel like parents are fair game to me. I'd really... Like, if Mulan decided to be a stand-up and just trash every single personal thing about me, mm-hmm. I think that's fair game. I just think your parents are fair game. I think your kids are not fair game. Right. I don't think your spouse is fair game. Right. And now I have a kid and a spouse, and they do funny things that I know would kill. <laughs> but I can't do it. I'm sorry. I know it. Because a... I, I value them more. I think it would corrupt our relationship in a deep way. Sure. Well, this is a, this is a grown-up moral decision you're making yes. against comedy. Well, yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, I guess I, I will probably be less funny for making that decision, but I'll probably be happier. <laughs> All right. It was great okay. talking to you. Good luck with it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for coming by. I feel like I talk too much. Stop it. <laughs> Wasn't that nice? Wasn't that a nice pre-Thanksgiving talk? Red Miller on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving with a song. With some, uh, with a troubadour, Rhett Miller. Go to WTFPod.com. I imagine already, by the end of this broadcast, which is now, that those mugs that Brian made are gone. But we're restocking the store. Restocking the store with shirts and stuff. I pulled out another pedal that I don't know how to use for my guitar time.